Hi, everybody. This is Mark Summers, and today I'm going to be talking to the great Gabriel Iglesias, a.k.a. Fluffy. We're going to discuss his early cartoon sex jokes. I was doing, like, Marvin the Martian, like he was having, like, like oh, my, oh, my modulator. <laughs> his recent reunion with his dad. I found out that I have uh, siblings. I have two sisters from him. That you didn't know about. That I didn't know about. And the hard journey of a comic that comes before doing epic stuff like playing Dodger Stadium. I mean, I performed in inside of swimming pools. I performed off the back of pickup trucks. I performed <laughs> in backyards, front yards, living rooms. I want to say that the only reason why I had such a good attitude about it at the time was because I didn't know they were they were bad gigs. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Mark Summers on Raps. Fluffy <laughs> is from Southern California. Yep. Los Angeles. Yep. Is the city where it's hard for the Dodgers to get people to fill Dodger Stadium. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? And yet he did it. He did it. He sold the place out, which is is remarkable when you think about it. And when he talks about doing over three hours of material, I remember trying to remember 20 minutes of material. Now, he's been doing it a long time. But, you know, you feel the crowd and... Uh, it is a surreal experience when you walk out, I would imagine, to a crowd that big I never have, but I can only imagine. Uh, and and he's just the nicest guy in the world. You know, I've spent a little time with him, not much, more today than any other time. And um, he's as nice as you could imagine him to be. And there's a likability factor there that you either have or you don't. And boy, he has it big time. Well, it's almost magic then that he's holding on to the attention of so many people to be so likable on that grand scale. Yep. He talks about keeping it clean, which he didn't always do. <laughs> but you yourself have talked about the importance or there's being a certain coming of age of going clean. Yeah. Can you speak about that? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, you go back to Lenny Bruce, who was the first one who really broke through boundaries, but didn't really. When you go back and listen to that material, <laughs> it was really George Carlin who opened up the door in, in that. And when I was working the comedy store, the improv or one of those places, if you were dying, it was really easy to get a laugh by you know, as we used to say, going blue, saying the word uh, the F word or, you know, telling a, an off-color joke, it would always get a laugh. But where are you going to go with that? Um, I mean, the ultimate goal back in the day was to do six minutes on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And you knew you could never do that kind of material. And when the folks from The Tonight Show would come in and see you, the minute you opened with a dirty joke, they left because they knew there's nothing they could do with you on The Tonight Show. So Gabe was very smart to realize that the future was in being clean and being himself, and man, he, he's made a hell of a career out of it. He has, and we've also talked on this show, though, about doing the Robin Williams School of Comedy, saying whatever comes out of your mouth, not worrying about <laughs> the impact. Yep. What do you think is most valuable? Well, very few people could do that. I mean, Robin pulled it off magically, and uh, you know, when you try to think of more people who who have magically done that, I can't think of really anybody. Robin was the king of that. Uh, you know, George Carlin was the king of doing uh, cerebral, philosophical, gee, scratch my head kind of humor. And um, when we talked to Gabe, I compared him to two old school comedians, Alan King and Danny Thomas, who would get up and, and tell a 20-minute story uh, that included very funny things within it, but didn't tell jokes. And and I don't think anybody else other than Gabe is getting up and, and doing that. So he's got a, a, a market, a corner of the market captured. And it's interesting to me that nobody else has uh, sort of caught on to that and tried to emulate him. Hmm. Yeah, certain kind of magic. It's like a very long TED Talk, but where people are laughing, too. <laughs> what a great comparison. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Like, Yeah, you're right. For so long. When you were doing magic, we weren't doing three-hour shows, but you would be. it would be so important that you kept people's attention. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right. Uh, you would do, you know, 
12 to 20 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, which when you're standing on stage seems forever sometimes. Other days it, it flies by. Um, and I wonder, I should have asked him, you know, when you're on stage for three hours at Dodger Stadium, did it seem like it was just like, you know, snapping your fingers or did it seem like like three hours to you? Um, and the pressure, because, you know, my wife pretty much never came to any of the shows I, I would do because she said it, it made me nervous and it did. And I never performed as well when she was in the room. I guess he's comfortable enough to have all his cronies there. Um, mm-hmm. I never got to that point. So I admire him for doing that as well. Wait, so quick follow up then, though. You would be out doing the shows. Your wife wasn't there. So he did speak of the disconnect, the home yeah. life versus the work life. Yep. Did you find that challenging? Well, uh, you know, uh, the word sacrifice came up towards the end of our interview and um, you make choices. Okay. And, um, my wife never wanted anything to do with the entertainment business. Mm. She grew up in Los Angeles, but it meant nothing to her. Um, and so that was my passion. And she never enjoyed being backstage or hanging out. I remember I opened, uh, you know, at the Santa Monica Civic for the Bay City Rollers. She dropped me off and then came back and picked me up. She didn't want to stay for the show. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything that she came to see me. I used to do the, she'd come to the comedy store, never enjoyed it. Magic Castle, never really enjoyed it. Um, she always thought magicians were weird, and they are. Um, I, you know, I, I'd have to call Alice and ask her if there was ever a performance that she came to see me do that, you know, sort of blew her head off. You know, she married me because of who I am, not because of, you know, potentially I was going to be, you know, well-known or famous or whatever. And, and I guess that's part of the reason it's all worked. And I always say I've been married 48 years, but I've only been home 14 of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that also adds to the uh, mystery of uh, keeping a marriage together as well. TV, I Say, with Ashley Ray is back and now part of the Earwolf Podcast Network. Comedian and pop culture expert Ashley Ray invites you to kick back and join her for a weekly look at what you should be watching, breaking down the best TV moments with some of your favorite actors, comedians, and more. It's the Hangout sitcom of the podcast you've been waiting for. You can listen to TV, I Say, with Ashley Ray right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Very excited to have Fluffy Gabriel Iglesias uh, with our program today. When I tell people who's going to be on the show uh, within the family, uh, they usually don't get too excited. But everybody got excited, the fact that, that we got you. And this show is about overcoming obstacles. Let me tell you the obstacle I had to overcome to get you here. Do you know the process of how, how protected you are? Do you have uh, any idea? I, I have an idea of how protected <laughs> I am. That's funny. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I have a friend uh, who works over at uh, Levity on the TV side, and he gave me a, a number of a manager who gave me, uh, me passed off to another agent or manager who got me passed off to a publicist. And when I finally got a hold of the publicist, uh, first they said yes, and then uh, they said, Gabe's not doing that stuff anymore. Uh, get back to us. And then they played the game of how do we know you're really Mark Summers and so I had to uh, send a, a, a direct message from my Twitter account because I had the blue check mark to make sure it, it really was me. I said, "Why don't you just call me?" You know, and it's, so so you are well protected, my friend, and uh, and I'm so glad that you are here. We have so many things to talk about. Well, how do they know you didn't buy the blue check? Because now you can buy the blue. <laughs> well, check. now you can. <laughs> but a couple of weeks ago, when we tried to do this a couple of months ago, it, it it wasn't that easy, man. Let me tell you. 
Uh, first of all, I owe you an apology because uh, about four years ago, you were nice enough to come on the reboot of Double Dare, and, and there just happened to be a, a pie there. And I looked at the pie, and I looked at you, and, and I, I hit you in the face with the pie, and you were very sweet about it. So I, I, I hope you had another pair of clothes to leave uh, the studio that day, or, or did you go home oh, with Oh, pie? no, not at all, man. But I got, you know, I got a pie to the face from you. So that was, uh, <laughs> I, in some weird way, I think I lived out a childhood fantasy with that one right there. See, so I, I love hearing I was, that. I was good. I was good. I was very happy with it. Did you go up watching Double Dare? Yes. Yes, I did. So, uh, that was always like, wow, man. I'd that was back when I, I you know, uh, I was always like, yeah, take the physical challenge. Take the, like, I was always all about the physical challenge, but I'm 46 now, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to answer those questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to Google, and I'm going to get those questions right. <laughs> you know, that used to be the thing kids used to say to me. I wanted to be on the show, but my parents didn't want to get messy. So, you know, there were a lot of disappointed uh, kids back in the day because the parents didn't want to get slimed. But those that did uh, have a lifelong memory, and I'm glad that uh, we got to do that with you on the show. So I, I, I loved how it was always like the bluff game. Like it was the bluff. Like like you're talking to each other. Like we got this question. I bet you they're stupid, right? And then you're like, you're like dare. And then, it's so true. And then you could see it like, oh shoot. Okay. Uh. I, I have copious notes here on you. There's so many things I want to talk about. Um, first of all, whether you know it or not, and I always bring this up in, in these shows that I started off doing stand up. Uh, I became a regular at the store in 1976. So uh, my roots are in somewhat your roots. And um, I, I want to talk to you about how did you form this type of comedy you do? Because what you do is unique. Uh, what you do, nobody else does. Um, if you go back, I'm going to mention names that may mean nothing to you. Alan King, does that mean anything to you? Alan King. I know who Alan King is. Okay. Uh, Danny Thomas. Danny Thomas, yes. They used to tell stories. They didn't tell jokes. You don't tell jokes, in my opinion. You tell really funny stories that have jokes throughout them. How did you come up with this concept? Because nobody has done it in 25 years, and other than you, I can't think of anybody else who is doing it. Uh, you know, when I first started doing stand-up, it was just impressions, characters. Uh, I was super dirty. I was Were super, you really? Yes, I was very blue. Um, I was just doing cartoons having sex. That was my whole act in the beginning. But <laughs> you got to figure, I was, I was performing most of the time inside of bars, uh, dive bars, to be exact. I mean, like really seedy places. And so uh, it worked perfectly in those uh, situations. And what's funny is that I wound up meeting a comic by the name of Joy Medina who uh, told me, he says, hey, listen, man, you're really funny. You're going up there. You're very likable. He goes, if you cut out the cuss words, you're still going to be funny. Uh, and you're going to be able to play wherever you want. And I go, well, what are you talking about? He goes, trust me, you're going to get opportunities down the line, and most of the time comics have to edit their sets. He goes, if you if you work clean now, cut out the F-bombs and just focus on being funny, he goes, you're going to be ready when those phone calls come in. And it was the best advice I ever got. And so once I started doing that, um, it took me a while before I got comfortable enough to actually share uh, personal things about myself on stage. And so once I did, I'm like, well... Let me just do what I did in high school, because when I was in high school, I took a, a speech uh, class. And what I would do is every day I'd go in front of the class because the teacher would give you extra credit for speaking in front of class. And it didn't matter what you talked about. So I would just go up there and I would talk about my day, talk about what happened at home. And I'm like, yeah, so I get home. My mom was like, ¿Dónde andabas? ¿Qué andabas haciendo? <laughs> and the people would laugh because I'm, I'm now I'm doing impressions of my mom and I'm telling a story. And that's what it was, is I was just sharing stories. And so the more experiences I had, the more stories I had. And so I would just start taking those stories to the stage because that was easier than just trying to be 
uh, comic doing voices and characters uh, uh, having sex with each other. You know what? What cartoons were having sex back oh, in the man, day? Oh man, I was doing like Marvin the Martian. Like he was having like, like oh my, oh my modulator. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And it's like it's still funny, but you know you, you couldn't do that on Nickelodeon back in the day. <laughs> And the irony was that, you know, eventually I got picked up by Nickelodeon. Yes. Which I think is funny. We're both two former Nickelodeon employees. You were doing what, all that, right? <laughs> yes, I did all that for a season. And was that fun for you? It was because it was something different, and I could not believe the amount of attention uh, I was getting. And not to mention the fact that uh, it took me from, you know, I was making, I don't know, 50 to 80 bucks a week trying to do stand-up. And now now I was I was paying for cars. <laughs> like from like doing literally, Nick. just just from Nickelodeon. Yeah, yeah. I, you you got in at a good time. Obviously. I got in at a really good time. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it was only for one season, but I, you know, at least I had a, a nice run. Did you ever do the comedy store, or the improv, or any of those? I don't remember you back in those clubs. I did. It's just that I didn't get. Um, I call it the clicks. Like, um, uh, the comedy store always had clicks. There's always there was clicks. There was like the either the Joe Rogan click or the Andrew Dice Clay click or the. Uh, Eddie Griffin, there was all these different cliques mm -hmm. of, of comics that had their little core groups. And so whenever I would go there, I would just pop in from time to time. But um, I am a regular, and I want to say that my little old, uh, you know, 20-some-odd-year-old headshot is still in the in the main lobby, uh, me wearing braces and stuff. But, you know, if I still pop in right now, I'm could. i I'm pretty sure I could well, go up. Now you but, can, trust me. But it was one of those, uh, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't a regular because I was already going on the road. Is, and, is your and, name on the side of the building? Yes, it is. See, that was a turning point for me. I knew that I had made it when my name. And about once a year, I still drive by and make sure it's still there. You know, there's just something about that that club <laughs> from back in the day. You know, but you're right. There were those clicks when I was there. It was Letterman and Leno. See, uh, you know, it's, it's always you know. And could you break through? And and at least to get get accepted. Back in the day, we used to go after the shows were over with it, like one o'clock in the morning. We would go to this uh, Carney's. Uh, oh no, we would go to well, we spent a lot of time at Carney's there on the on the Sunset Strip, but at a place called Theodore's, which was uh, on Santa Monica Boulevard. And then we'd go to Cantor's, and you'd sit there till like three o'clock in the morning. I remember Cantor's. Uh, it, it was just the best because I would sit there with uh, a guy by the name of Johnny Yoon, Johnny Dark, Leno, uh, Letterman. Um, I'm just trying to think of all these guys that you know, Tom Dreesen. Um, and you would sit back and listen to these stories because they were opening for people back then. That was the goal. See, before Vegas got screwed up and they put Cirque du Soleil in every room, you know, Steve and Edie and, and all these people would, you know, uh, be there. And your job would be to open for one of these acts. And, you know, uh, that was like the best gig in the world. Did you open for, for people? I got a chance to open up for a couple of people early on. But, I mean, I, I caught I was very lucky that I was able to get on the road very quickly. Were you? Um, I got in, uh, I basically, I emceed for about a year. And so I became a middle after about eight months and then, you know, then it went from there. So, uh, but as far as like musical acts, I mean, poof, JJ Jackson, I remember oh opening for JJ Jackson on new year's. Wow. That was the first time I bombed in front of a lot of people. That must've been a very tough gig. It right? was a very tough gig because I went out there, I put on a suit and they basically put me out there while everybody was still getting their food and no one was really sitting down and paying attention yet. And I had to just go up there and, all right, this is what I do. And I only had maybe 15 minutes of time to my name and uh, I had to stretch it to like 20. And it was horrible. It was horrible. I made so much money that day. I was so excited. I made a, like, I was excited. I made $1,000. I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen $1,000. Died and gone and, to heaven, right? Yeah. But then it's like, I felt like I earned it because I bombed so bad. And I felt so, <laughs> it was so much mental pain and just like, wow. And then I went out and I watched J.J. Jackson perform, you know. 
I just remember the three dates stick in my mind. Once I got paid twenty five hundred dollars to say, "Ladies and gentlemen," and I, uh, 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 oh, "Ladies and gentlemen, Crystal Gale." That's all I had to do. I had to put on a tuxedo. It was downtown in some fancy hotel, wow. and I walked on stage and said, "Ladies and gentlemen." Crystal Gale, and then, then I walked on stage, watched her perform. They handed me a check. That was like the best gig ever. Okay, that sounds like the best gig still. Oh my god! <laughs> Mitzi once sent me downtown to the clothing mart, and there was a shoe convention. All these New York guys selling shoes meeting in Los Angeles, and she wanted me to do twenty minutes of stand up for three hundred bucks. I, I, I three hundred dollars was like a fortune to me back then. I would, of course. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the comedy of Mark Summers. And they had no interest in listening to anything I said. And after about five minutes of them shouting out, I yelled, shut the fuck up, okay? And they stopped and looked at me and then went back and kept talking. And I called Mitzi after the gig and I said, you're not going to pay me because this was miserable and all the kind of stuff. And she gave me the check and she said, no, they loved you. What did they love? I didn't do anything, you know, but so that was a a miserable gig, uh, I I remember. And once I got uh, an opportunity to open for the Bay City Rollers, which at the time were like the hottest group at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. And um, I was still doing magic then. I wasn't doing comedy. And they said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the magic. I'm still Mark Berkowitz. And please welcome to the comedy and magic of Mark Berkowitz. And all I heard from a bunch of 12 and 13-year-old girls was, get the fuck off the stage, you know? And, uh, you know, they paid me. They told me, David Copperfield had opened for them in New York. And David had called me and said, this is the hardest gig I've ever done in my entire life. And they said, you've got to go out there and do 12 minutes. And if you don't do the full 12 minutes, we're not going to pay you. So I went out there and did, you know, what I thought was an hour and a half. And I looked over and Steve Rissmiller, the promoter, looked at me. And I still had like, you know, 10 minutes to go. And then he showed me five minutes and four or three. Talk about sweating bullets. And so those are the early days that you remember. And you go, man, I, I never hope I have to do that again. Fast forward the tape. We're going to talk about Dodger Stadium in a few minutes, but I mean, when you think about what you went through in the early days to sell out Dodger Stadium, what goes through your mind when you think about that? You know, the early gigs were the ones where I really just like I just mentioned the one where I I remember bombing really really bad. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I don't think I've had a, a too many situations like that. I've I've been pretty good about feeling comfortable, you know, in certain situations. I mean, I've performed in inside of swimming pools. I performed off the back of pickup trucks. I performed in backyards, <laughs> front yards, living rooms. Um, I mean, you you name it. Uh, any any you know, I've done weddings. Um, good, good weddings, bad. Yeah, you know, and and so I've, I I want to say that the only reason why I had such a good attitude about it at the time was because I didn't know they were they were bad gigs. Yeah. I, I just figured, you know what, these are people willing to listen to me, do stand up, and I'm just happy to be working. And, you know, I had a really, really good attitude in, in that in the beginning. I feel now I'm like, uh now now I'm jaded. Now I'm like, now I feel like a vet who's been like, you know, you don't know about those gigs. You weren't there for that shit. You know, you, this new generation and their YouTube videos, they don't understand the struggle. I got called once to do a bar mitzvah to recreate Double Dare in Florida at some football stadium for fifty grand and I turned it down. Because I just thought to myself, there's no way this is going to work. This this just can't be good. You're playing a football stadium, and and people who have way too much money, the expectations are just so high. And I remember walking away from that gig. My wife thought I was out of my mind, but I knew that the end result was not going to be good. No, it's it's a hoe gig. That's it, uh, that's what they call them. It's a, it's a whole straight up hoe play. You're you're not doing it for the love of what you do. No. You're doing it for the paycheck. And I'm guilty of taking a few of those, but it's because the pay was so much of a like. I, you know, the, <laughs> I, I remember the struggle, and so I, I can't 
I can't say no to some of these. Yeah. And it's it's really, really hard. But then you feel like such a, just a, you know, like I said, like a whore. Like, oh. When you're done, you're like, I can't <laughs> believe it. Let's go to the mall. Let's make it better. Let's go to the mall after this. It, it's, it's so different. You know, when we brought Double Dare back, back in the day, you had to fight for, for money. I, I started there in 1986, and they paid me 500 bucks an episode. I'd never made 2,500 bucks a week on anything. So when we renegotiated the new deal... My head exploded when they told me how much money. And by the way, the first offer would have been fine, but we, of course we negotiated it up. And and you think about the balance of when you first start versus you know what's today. But you've earned it. You know, uh, I would get upset sometimes with my agent and say, you know, really they're going to pay me that much money? He goes, they're not paying you for what you're doing now. They're paying you for all the time that you put in to get to this point. Way to way to put that. Yeah. You know, you look at TV people and you look at movie stars and people on Broadway and you go, boy, those those are the luckiest people in the world. And what they don't realize is how hard it is. Why do some people, when they hit the wall, climb over or go around the wall, but other people just walk away and go, I'm not doing this anymore? And you have that stick that has made you what you are today. So let's go back and talk about growing up. Uh, single family home, correct? Yes. Uh, it was just my mom, uh, no dad. My siblings were already grown up and out of the house. Oh, I, now brothers and sisters, how many? Uh, one brother, four sisters. And where are they today? Uh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> not a close-knit family, huh? <laughs> no, not really. Not really. Uh, ever since my mom passed away, I haven't really kept in touch with a whole lot of them. Uh, you know, I, I think we, we all we all were putting our best foot forward to just try to uh, maintain a certain level of, of being civil yeah. while my mom was around. How long ago did your mom pass away? Ten years. Ten years. It must have been a tough one, huh? Mm-hmm. Never easy, never easy. Yeah, I just lost mine as well. I, I know. Uh, I know what you're talking about. That. Um, did you know your dad? Uh, yeah, and actually, I, I re- had a reunion with him about two weeks ago. Tell me about that. Uh, it was yeah, it was about fifteen. The last time I saw him was about fifteen years ago. My mom was still alive, and um, I reconnected with him in Mexico City. Uh, I had a, I had my first show ever in Mexico City, and I said, yeah, you know what? Let me let me have a twofer. And so <laughs> I figured, big show. Let me let me. Uh, let me go talk to the guy, you know, and, and I, I had no ill will towards him. I mean, you know, it's uh, what am I going to complain about? Uh, hey, you know, how come you I'm not going to say, why weren't you there? Or what happened? I mean, I feel like I turned out fine. Yeah. If anything, I just I need some medical information. And I found out that I have uh, siblings. I have two sisters from him that you didn't know about that I didn't know about. And I have a couple of nieces. So it's nice that I, I got a chance to meet everybody. And that was kind of like, all right, I think all of our expectations were we were trying to manage and just be like, all right, let's just feel this out, see what this is going to how this is going to go. And I, I felt like it went really, really well. Um, again, I didn't there was no arguing. There was no fighting. There was no finger pointing. There wasn't, you know, how come or whatever. It was just like, hey, well, you know, uh, hey, you're 80 years old now. I got, you know, just want to say hi. Hope, yeah. you're, hope you're well. Was that a tough call for you to make? Uh, not. It was a little bit awkward, but I had a couple family members that, that you know, went with me, and uh, they made it easy. And fortunately, my Spanish has gotten way better <laughs> since the last time I saw him. Uh, <laughs> Spanish TV and, and songs help. They they do, because I didn't, I didn't learn Spanish in school. You I, did not? I, no, I had to learn it just by talking to people and just hanging out and listening and getting yelled at. Um, you get yelled at enough times, you pick up the words. And when you were down in Mexico, did you did the show in English then? The show was in English, yes. But uh, the, the conversations I had with my father and my sisters was all in Spanish. All in Spanish. Wow. Interesting. So, but yeah, it went well. Uh, like I said, uh, the last time I saw him was 15 years prior. My mom was still alive. And the goal was to try to get the two of them together so I could take a photo. 
And that was my thing. I was like, I never had a picture of my mom and my dad together, the, the three of us, and I would just like to have that photo. And so when I asked my dad back then, he goes, yeah, no, absolutely, I, I, no problem. And then I asked my mom, and my mom was just like, are you crazy? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, mom, it's just a quick photo. You don't even have to talk to him. I don't want to be. And, like, it was it was serious. So it didn't happen. Yeah. And then when my mom passed away, I thought about reaching out to my dad, but then I'm like, you know what? I don't want to try to replace her. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't want to go from like one to another right away. I wanted to give it time. Right. And that time just happened to be 15 years. Wow. So, And so you moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, we moved around a lot of uh, a lot in Southern California. So like, for example, I started off in Chula Vista, San Diego. Then we lived in Baldwin Park, Riverside, uh, Long Beach, uh, Whittier, and I'm still in Long Beach. And at one point I moved out and I moved to Whittier again and I moved to Burbank. And I lived in Burbank because my manager at the time thought it was a good idea for me to live where Hollywood's at. And you can get to everywhere in your auditions. You're never going to be late, blah, blah, blah. And I think I had maybe three auditions and one Tonight Show appearance in that time. So it was kind of pointless to, you know, move far away because I was still driving back home to see friends and family and stuff. And so... You moved around a lot because your mom was changing jobs, or what was the situation? Uh, well, you know what? That's a good question. Uh, we lived in a lot of different apartments uh, growing up in Long Beach. Uh, we were under housing, uh, you know, HUD at the mm -hmm. time. I, I don't know what it's called now. I'm pretty sure it's the same. And we were also under welfare. So we had we were welfare. Uh, it was the, uh, what do you call it, the EBT card of its time. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Section 8, and I remember we went to apply for that so that we could try to move into a better situation. And, uh, and we did. It, it took some time. And the building is still there in Long Beach, and I, I got a chance to go visit the uh, mayor of Long Beach at the time. Uh, and it was the same building where my mom and I went when I was a little kid to go apply to get this, uh, you know, to get approval for, for housing. And I just thought it was cool. I'm like, wow, I remember being here, and now I'm here to meet the mayor. Wow. So, yeah. And so were you, you were kind of a, little, a latchkey kid, I'm assuming. You came home from yes, school. Yes. You know what? A lot of people don't know what that is. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned what a latchkey kid is now. They, it sounds like abuse. Yeah. But you know? it's not. But Explain. it's not. A latchkey kid back in the day when I was, I remember being uh, 10 years old, my mom got a uh, like a piece of yarn and she tied a key to it. And then she put the key around my neck and it was my first form of jewelry. <laughs> and basically, uh, as soon as I was done at school, I'd take the bus back home. Basically, you know, uh, they, there was always a drop off. Then you'd walk home and I would have to unlock the door, go inside and lock the door. And basically I babysat myself. Until my mom got back. And so you'd make yourself something to eat and watch yeah. TV. Make your, the rules was don't answer the door, don't answer the phone, uh, unless there was a code for the phone. So, like, if my mom was going to call me, uh, this is way before, uh, you know, caller ID and all that, she would let the phone ring one time and then hang up and then call back again. And that was the code. <laughs> so then when I picked it up the second time, I'm like, hey, mom. And she's like, okay, good. You're doing what you're supposed to do. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And then, of course, if someone came knocking, you stayed quiet. And then uh, you weren't allowed to use the stove. So don't touch the stove. You can make yourself whatever you want. Just don't touch the stove. So with that upbringing, what motivated you to where you are today? Uh, well, one of the times I was babysitting myself, my mom took me to the video store and I rented a couple of VHS tapes, which was the Netflix of its day. Yep. Uh, and I remember, I remember watching Eddie Murphy Raw. Oh, and, did you? How old were you? Oh God, I must have been eleven. Oh, your 11. head must yeah, have exploded. Was, it was like wow. I had never heard language like that or just seen like anything like that. It was. It was a lot, and I think that if my mom would have known what I was watching, she probably wouldn't have let me watch it. No. But, you know, since it was like, here, babysit yourself. Pick out some movies. <laughs> and as long as you didn't have to walk behind the, the beads to get your videotape, 
You know what I mean? I as, long as, you as long as you didn't have to walk behind the, the special wooden beads that were in the corner. Uh, if you could get your tape in the regular room, then you're, it was okay. Whatever it is. And so, yeah, I remember watching Eddie Murphy Raw, and I'm like, wow, he's doing these characters and, and voices and stories. And so it was everything that I was like, this is so awesome. And I was so drawn to it. And I wound up doing a school talent show about a month later. And I just went up there and I did impressions. And I was doing impressions of what I had seen Eddie Murphy do, minus, no. the, minus the language. And, uh, Did you really? Yeah, and I got in my first talent show that way. So Eddie was your first influence in Eddie was my first influence. It was him and then Robin Williams once I started watching Robin Williams movies. Because I saw Robin Williams movies before I saw his stand-up. Did you ever meet him? I met Robin one time. So we were at the store at the same time. The nicest man ever. He was being honored uh, in New York once. Uh, and I was at the dinner. And he came out of the kitchen and... I mean, it was Walter Cronkite and, and wow. Barbara Walters and all these people. And I said, when you walk into a room like this and see all these people here to honor you, what goes through your mind? And he said to me, well, look at your career. Look what you're doing. He always turned it around. He was always the nicest guy, the sweetest guy. So sad that, uh, that he ended his life the way he did. But talk about a, a comedic influence. And in fact, let's talk about that for a second. When when Letterman first started at the Comedy Store. Nobody had ever seen anybody like David Letterman. And after he became successful, there were 10 clones. People thought they were as good as Dave, trying to do what Dave did. When Robin hit the scene, nobody had ever seen anything like that. And in 90 days, there were 15 versions of Robin. And, and once again, my point of view is there's already one of those people, and they're successful. If you're the clone of those people, the odds of becoming success, successful are slim and none. How did you come up with this no politics, uh, no sports, uh, your whole mantra about what you deliver? How did that develop? I think that, that goes back to when uh, I was told to, to be clean. Just don't rub people the wrong way. And I, I figure that, you know, what divides people immediately. And that's, you know, you'll see it when you go to bars. If you go to bars, uh, well, depending on the bar, you'll see signs, no politics. Because people will drink and get into it at the bar, and it'll mess up everybody's vibe. And uh, I feel like I don't follow politics enough to be, to sound like I know what I'm talking about. Like, don't mm -hmm. get me wrong. I understand the headlines and everything that's going on. But, you know, these people that are very detailed, they under, like, like the ins and outs, and they start knowing all the names of all the politicians and everyone who's doing X, Y, Z. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I do follow, but I don't, I don't need to put my opinion out there. People don't pay for that. They pay, pay to come out, have a good time, smile, and leave feeling good, not feeling like, hmm, they're questioning their life. Or should I do it? Should I not do it? You know, should I get the shot, not get the shot? Should we keep this baby or not keep the baby? You know, that's not for me to do. <laughs> right. And so uh, I made my mind up early on. Just talk about yourself. Talk about your life. Talk about things that everyone can relate to and, and don't ruffle feathers. I made that mistake. I was asked to be on Bill Maher's show once. And uh, I, I to this day, I have a copy of it in my closet. It's, it's been there for years. I cannot look at it. I bombed so bad because... I was way out of my league. You know, they're talking about politics and, and things in the world that I had no reason to be there for, and um, I, I crashed and burned. You know, when you get done doing a show, you generally go up to the producer and say, how did I do? I remember walking to the producer, and he ran the other direction. So I, I knew that <laughs> I had bombed so bad, man. It's unbelievable. So And, and see, and, and, uh, I, I like watching Bill Maher's show. I like watching any show that, that just that makes me laugh, that there's, there's actual comedy involved mm -hmm. in it, especially if a comedian's the host, whether it's, you know, left, right, blue, red, whatever the case, I, I enjoy it. Uh, I remember um, 
God, uh, Dennis Miller. You yeah. know, Dennis Miller's one that's you know all the way one way, and Bill Mars, you know, well, for a while was all the way the other. But then you watch someone like Trevor. You know, it's just like okay, uh, I would have liked to have been on one of those shows or all of those shows. But again, I don't want to be. I don't want to get roped into the politics of it and then have people question why I'm why I'm there because automatically you're guilty by association. I know. I have lunch every Wednesday with Dennis Miller. And um, he's awesome. He's awesome. He's he's the smartest human I've ever met in my entire life. And I always tell him when I have lunch, I have to have a, a, a thesaurus, a dictionary, and an encyclopedia because I have no idea what he's talking about. He makes these comparisons, and I have to go home and look all this stuff up. That's how smart this guy is. You know, yeah. it's 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 insane. How'd you get into doing the impressions? Um, you know what? I and the sound effects. When I was ten, I remember when I saw Eddie Murphy raw. Uh, I started trying to mimic what he was doing, and I realized that I was, for some reason, I was able to do the girl voice. That just came out of nowhere. I don't even know where that, I think that was puberty hitting, <laughs> you know, and then uh, just mimicking. Just, you know, I'd hear a voice long enough, and then I'd try to, try to mimic it, and I think that's where they, they came from. Didn't you do Speedy Gonzalez in... Uh, yes, I did. Was that a, a ball? I mean, I, I don't think you can do Speedy Gonzalez anymore because everybody's so nuts. Well, I mean, I, I still did it the way that it was supposed to be done, but that was a conversation because originally when, when we talked about doing the, the movie, they said, uh, I think maybe we're going to, you know, modernize the voice. And they said, well, how about we use your regular speaking voice? And I'm like, well, my regular speaking voice isn't really... You know, it's in the vein, but I'm not speaking fast enough, and uh, I think people are going to know. And I don't need people to know that it's me. I need people to know that it's Speedy. Yeah. I think and Mel Blanc did Speedy. Mel Blanc did everybody. everything. Right. And now there's a new guy named Eric. I want to say is Eric Bowser, I think is his name. I met him I've on one of these of shows. And he does a lot of the characters. Does he? You know, I can get close, but that guy is like dead on. Scary, right? Yeah. It's but, but for Speedy Gonzalez, I mean, come on, man. I'm, you know. <laughs> do me, do a little Speedy. Oh, for... mira, amigo, Mark Summers. <laughs> Arriba! Bye, family! <laughs> yeah. Did you have a ball doing that? Oh, yeah, it was easy. It was so much fun. And I told him, too, I go, hey, if you guys want me to do any other characters, man, you know, you can get it like a, you know, Two for one, three for one. Just uh, <laughs> that's got to be so just much. Give, fun give me some swag, that. man. Give me some. <laughs> well, it lasts or, forever or too. That that movie's going to be around forever. You know, your your grandkids and your great grandkids are going to be watching that movie. Which I is can say fun. I can say I was part of the uh, list of people that did it. Yeah, so absolutely yeah, it's a big deal. Talk to me about your time on Last Comic Standing. Ooh, okay. Well, um, the show. I mean, I'm not letting any real secrets out. The show. There's a lot of politics on that show. You think? Yeah, there's a lot of politics. I don't think it really had much to do with with competition. It was all who you know, what you know, what you do. Uh, yeah, I wasn't supposed to do this show. They actually called me and see if I was interested. Really? They wanted uh, they wanted me in the mix on that one, and I was like, well, you know, I go, but I don't want, I'm, I'm, you know, in order to do that show, you had to wait in like a six hour line outside of whatever club was having the auditions. And when I'd see those lines, I'm like, I am not waiting. You know, in a long ass line, you know, because I'm already performing at the clubs at that point. Yeah. I'm already a headliner at that point. Yeah, and why, I'm am like, I... why am I going to do that? And they're like, well, you know, we want to kind of mix it up a little bit and, and put a little bit more on the show. And so they said, OK, you can bypass the line and you go you go straight to producers or, you know, whoever the head honchos were at the time. Uh, instead of going through all the channels, I basically got a, a fast pass. And so, of course, I do the show where there's a live audience. And with a live audience, you know, I was killing it. Yeah, all I had to do was ass. three minutes. And so just like that, I was on the show. 
And when I got on the show, I had just gotten into a new relationship and I was trying to, uh, you know, very insecure dude at the time. I'm not saying that I'm not now, but I wanted to stay in touch and you were not allowed to stay in touch with people. They made you give up your cell phone. You couldn't make phone calls. Well, you could make phone calls, but they listened in and it was very what uncomfortable. What was the point of that? Why couldn't you make a phone call? Because they thought you were going to get like material. No, please. And I'm like, really? Yeah. I'm like, come on. I've been on. doing this for 10 years. So... um, they wound up putting us all in a hotel, and then they moved us to the final location, which was the Queen Mary in Long Beach. And I live in Long Beach. Yeah. So I'm like, really? And then as soon as we get there, they're, they're telling us, okay, they're going to take your cell phones. They're going to go through your luggage. Like, seriously, like checking into prison. Like, we're just going to strip you. You're only going to have, you know, uh, this, 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 and that. But no, no technology. There's going to be cameras in the room. There's going to be, like, you know, they wanted to constantly watch you. And so I brought in, um, I brought in two dummy phones. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, well, I brought in a dummy phone, and I brought two live phones. <laughs> and then I brought in, like, three, 3K three in cash so I could grease whoever I needed to grease. You know, c- cash works. It always does, doesn't it? So what I wound up doing was uh, once I was on the ship, you know, they, they, they went through my luggage, and they took the initial cell phone that they thought was my cell phone. It was the dummy phone, and then they put it in a bag, and you'll get this back at the end of the show. Okay, all right. And then... um. Once I was in the in the room, I would go in the bathroom and I just pull out the cell phone and I was making all my phone calls from the uh, from the bathroom for the bathroom. And they caught you. The cameraman actually caught me. There wasn't like cameras that were in the room. The camera. I'm on my phone and I had a pillow on my lap, and I guess they saw me and they're like, "Gabe, what do you got there?" And I'm like, "Ah, oh, I got busted." And so once I had the phone out, they're like, you know, it, you know, they call all the producers in and Gabe's got a phone and this and this and that, and they're like, "Man, really." And so they were supposed to kick me off right then and there, but they wound up letting me stay for an extra three, four days because they still had a roast that they needed to do. And the roast was about me. And so they wanted to make oh sure they could finish God. all the shooting that week. And then all of a sudden the uh, the NBC executives are like, no, 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 this is it. You got to go. And so they did this whole, you know, deportation thing of the boat. <laughs> I call it deportation because I was the only brown one to get kicked off the boat. And so, <laughs> did you have to show your green card? I, I, I get, yeah, yeah, I get kicked off the boat. And it was like, all right. Unbelievable. But, you know, that. A lot of difference it made in your career, right? But it's one of those things, too, where I don't think anybody who ever won the show, just like America's Got Talent or any of these other shows, it's like, uh, not America, I'm thinking American Idol. American like, Idol. It's yeah. always the people that get kicked off early that wind up getting contracts for these yeah. you know, big deals. You and, don't want to win. You want to come in second yeah, or third. Yeah, you know? and so unless you're someone like a Kelly Clarkson right. who's, who's going to freaking you know really blow up, yeah. then it's kind of one of those like, yeah. Know, Name one winner of The Voice. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, it just always makes me laugh. Talk to me about Frankie. My son. Yes. Yes. How uh, old is he now? My son, Frankie, is now 25 years old. Oh, I didn't realize yeah, he was that old. 20, I know, right? Because I've been listening to routines about him for so long. I, he basically, he grew up in my set. Wow. He grew up in my set. Yeah, he's 25 now. What's he doing? Uh, he says his exact words are, he's a freelancer. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, what does I, that go, mean? I go, what does that mean? He goes, you don't know what a freelancer is? I go, I know what I think a freelancer is, but uh, I want to hear your version of it. It's like being an entrepreneur. What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? So he's working, but we just don't know what he's doing. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'll stop asking questions. I'm just like, if, as long as you're happy and, and, you know, I could tell based on whether he asked for money or not if he's doing okay. <laughs> and he doesn't ask for money anymore. So I'm like, you know what? I think he's doing He's doing, doing okay. all right. Let's talk about Dodger Stadium. Um, no person in uh, your world has ever sold out Dodger Stadium doing stand-up comedy. Was this a dream? No. Yeah, well, no one's ever even tried it, which no. is which is a big thing. Why it's just would like, you? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, this was not a dream. Uh, for me, I, I you know, 
growing up, I remember watching Andrew Dice Clay, mm -hmm. and I remember seeing that Andrew Dice Clay was the only comedian to ever perform in an arena where it was like publicized, televised, because I heard that there was other comics that had played arenas, but you know, like Steve Martin, but yeah. it's like you have to really know the game to find out that something like that took place. Mm -hmm. um, but with Dice, I mean, HBO was blowing comics up way back when, and yep. Andrew Dice Clay was the one that you saw at Madison Square Garden. And I just remember the images of him standing in the in the round and having that whole crowd around, and I'm like, wow, how awesome would that be? But I never thought that that was something that I could do. I just thought that was awesome that he did it. And so once uh, the career started, and you know, at the clubs, and then you know, uh, opener, fe um, feature, and then headliner, and then headliner with uh, uh, bonuses, because once you started selling tickets, yeah. you'd get bonuses. Yep. And I'm like, ooh. And so uh, <laughs> the bonuses started getting better and better. And, and then they want to add shows. And then next thing you know, the manager's like, hey, look, man, we're doing two weeks back to back. I think we can make the jump to theaters. And I'm like, oh, let's not ruin a good thing. Because yeah. I, I, I hated change. And I didn't want to grow out of that because I love the club so much. But then he was right. One night at the theater was two weeks at the club. And so then we were able to do two, three, four theaters in a week. And the money and the amount of people that I was exposed to was just boom, boom. It kept growing. Yep. And then, hey, man, we're doing, you know, we're doing four theaters in a row in the same city. Next time we're going to do an arena. What? And so the first time I played an arena was the uh, Toyota Center in Houston, Houston, Texas. Isn't that mind boggling? When you, when you walk out on that stage... And they say, ladies and gentlemen. And it, and it's that sound that you always hear in the movies. Yes. You know, that, <sighs> like really? But it's for you. Yeah. But you, you're wondering, is it really going to sound like that? And it does. It does. It does. It just. <sighs> How did it affect your timing? Uh, the timing, in the beginning, it, it did throw me off yeah. because I was not used to it. And then a laugh would take a minute yes. versus just taking a few seconds. Yeah. And so. The, with time, you know, you, you do get better and you adjust. You learn how to adjust. And then if you go to a, like for me, I'd mess myself up because I'd go to a comedy club one night and then the next night at an arena and then the, the timing between the two is insane. Well, just the use of the microphone is different. Yeah. You know, just the, the acoustics and everything. And so uh, it, it did take some adjusting. So was it 50,000 people at Dodger Stadium? It was a little over 50,000. Yes, it was. And you did how much time? What actually aired on Netflix was... Two hours, but what, I heard you what, did like closer to yeah, four. Yeah, I did. Well, it was it was about three. I mean, I I, I don't know. How do you three. remember all that material? My and then God. and then it, and then it was a, a little you know about half hour of, of celebrating. Uh, I, I remember at the end of the night, I wound up uh, popping a bottle <laughs> on stage in front of that whole crowd, and <laughs> no not? one cared because I'm like, if you're ever gonna get drunk and celebrate, that's the night to do it. Hell yeah! And everyone from to what I from what I could see, everyone stayed. To watch this, and you know, my, I brought my friends out on stage, and we just started doing shots and sharing stories, and <laughs> some of those stories made it to the end credits of the of the special, which yep. I thought was pretty cool. Yep. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't think that was gonna, you know, I, I knew I was gonna get emotional, but I, I think I was crying like every what about twenty minutes, I'd get all choked up, and so it was, it was just, it was so much, it was so overwhelming, and uh, the timing on that, believe it or not, was was probably the same as, as performing at an arena. Oh, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the key word that uh, folks like you and I love, uh, merch, okay? Um, they don't tell you about this when you're coming up uh, doing five minutes at the Comedy Store on a Monday night. And I got a chance in my career to, to interview George Carlin, and, and he said he made more money off of merchandise than he ever made off of ticket sales. And then fast forward the tape, I got into the Nickelodeon merch, and now tell me about your merch at Dodger Stadium. 
<laughs> oh, well, the, the merchandise. Uh, yeah, I, I caught on early. I'm a big fan of uh, WWE, yep. in particular Vince McMahon and the way that he ran his business. Uh, you know, the, the entertainment part and the merchandise and the way that he would package things. And that's what I started doing. Um, I would actually have merchandise that was promoted during my set. So I'd have my MC go out there, Martin, and he'd say, hey, don't forget, you know, especially on the big shows, we'd always have intermissions. Hey, here's your chance to go to the restroom. But while you're out there, you know, we got this and there's we'd write bits for all the merch. So each bit, each piece of merchandise had its own bit to it oh, to get laughs. Very smart. And, uh, you know, we, of course, we promote back in the day, it was CDs, DVDs, uh, you know, T-shirts. But then we got into specialty items. And then um, I wound up becoming a, a Funko Pop. We were trying to get Funko to license me. Just give me a check. License it. Yeah. And they didn't want to do it because they didn't have a, a comedy uh, edition. Right. You know, they had uh, they had the icons, television icons. They had wrestlers. They had musicians. But they didn't have comedians. And so we tried and they said, well, unfortunately, we know you are, but we don't have a, a comedy division, basically. And so I said, well, can I be the first? And they're like, well, we don't, you know, we don't want to license you. But if you're willing to, you know, we'll produce it for you, but you have to order so many units and we won't take you into consideration unless you order so many units. And I'm like, done. And they're like, oh, shoot. And so I ordered, it was basically a semi's worth of Funko Pops, and we sold them out. Oh, I we bet you did. We sold them out, and then we called them, and we ordered more. And they're like, you want more? We're like, yes, we want more. And then the conversation was like, well, do you want to do another one? I go, I'd love to do another one. Yeah. And so then we did a second one, and then here comes another semi. And what was cool is that uh, my... Funko Pop has a number one on it because it's the first one. And my second one has a number two because I was the first and the second. Oh, nice. And then other comics started seeing what was going on. And then Jeff Dunham jumped into the thing. Oh, and, Dunham did? And, and, and Joe Coy. And so then they started getting into the mix. In, but by then, I already had a couple Funko Pops in the in the can. I love it. And so those became very popular. I would sell them by themselves. And then I would sell them for a different price point once they were autographed. Well, the hot sauce thing, too, is very cool. Oh, man. and yeah, that's another thing, too. I, I got a good relationship with the Tapatio family. Yeah. And they put my face on a bottle. Which was and, which hysterical. Which was awesome and very organic because the, the running story from many years ago was that my father was the Tapatio man. <laughs> Really? Because my father was a real mariachi. Oh, I didn't know that. But because he was an absent father, when I tell my mom, what does my dad look like? Do you have any pictures? She'd grab the hot sauce <laughs> bottle and she'd go, he looks like that. And she Seriously? would just point. Yeah. He looks like that. <laughs> and if you look at pictures of my dad, he, he, looks, he looks like the, the tapatio guy. And so that was the running joke. Oh and the family God. had seen that bit. And so they were like, oh, yeah, you've been a fan for a long time. And I actually eat the hot sauce. So it's not like a, yeah. it wasn't forced. Saying one thing and it was, not. Uh, it was very organic. Not delivering. So, the, so yeah, to answer the question, the merch for Dodger Stadium was insane. That we had two great. different Funko Pops and we had two different hot sauces. It was insane. It's nice. It it's, was you know, insane. We used, I used to make Nickelodeon back in the day. You know, you make the T-shirts for $5 and sell them for 25 back in the day. I don't know. God knows what they are now. Um, but I always felt bad that kids would come and want something. So I made them sell like $2 shoelaces that said Double Dare on them or something like that because I wanted everybody to be able to walk away with something. Something. And if you couldn't afford it back in the day, 15, 20, 25 bucks, you got, you know, you bring two kids, uh, you know, it gets expensive. So, you know, it's, it's, it's such a crazy business. You know, doing stand up, I'm glad I haven't done stand up in a long time. But, you know, I see things on uh, social media where they are throwing things at 
comedians now if they disagree with their point of view. Has that ever happened to you where you've been on stage and something weird like that has happened? Throw, throwing things like uh, heckling or throwing well, things on stage? Or I, I was watching a girl the other day. Somebody threw a, a beer can at her while she was doing her act because they didn't like her point of view. She was talking oh, something about yeah, she, politics. She, uh, she mentioned Trump and then the, a beer can flew at her. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you saw that. Uh, but also hecklers. I mean, have you had uh, problems with people? Who... Um, a week prior to Dave Chappelle's incident at mm-hmm. the Hollywood Bowl, I was in Seattle at a casino, and during my set, this guy in the crowd runs up and jumps over the barricade and lands on the stage. He, it wasn't a it was it was successful in the part that he made it to the stage, but <laughs> he landed on, he landed on his face. It was a splat. Oh man! It was a splat, and when he hit the ground, uh, I, I remember seeing car keys flying out of his hand and two bags of chips. And then by that by then security had gotten on the stage, grabbed him and pulled him off the stage. And so, you know, I saw that they were pulling him to the side and I said, "Hey guys, I go, "Hey, just, you know, be careful, you know, just I was very mindful and, and I'm, all, I'm all about uh I always hear this word in my head because of my business manager, liabilities." Yes. And so I'm always, "Hey, be careful. Make sure he's okay. You're all right. What's going on, buddy? You good?" And his whole thing was he just wanted to bring me those snacks. Oh, really? that's what that's what his story was. And uh, the guy was drunk, yeah. you know, so when he hit the ground and the fact that a knife or a gun didn't fly out of his yeah. hands, two, that's the good news. two bags of chips. Yeah. So his story did line up. Yeah. You know, but then again, there was car keys. He could have given me a car. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But you, <laughs> you know, don't he, need a car. He, he had done that. And I remember I grabbed the bags of chips and I put them on a stool. And at the end, I just opened up the bags and I go, here's here's for the homie. They didn't make it because they, they escorted him <laughs> out. So the homie that couldn't be here. Uh, thank you. And uh, I found out later on that they, you know, they they uh, let him sober up and and got him, you got know, him out of there. got him out of there. Wow, just crazy. But uh, stuff like that ha- has happened. Um, as far as heckling goes, anytime I get heckles now at the shows, these are people that have paid good money to see the show, and mm-hmm. so the heckling I get is is very positive, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of I love you, or you know. My son loves you, or, or something where there's positive. there's it's very positive. Um, or they'll request a joke. Mm-hmm. Those hey, really do that, do that one joke, and, you know, do 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 that bit. And I'm like, okay, because there are points in the show where I'll get quiet for a second and I'll think about what I'm saying because it's been over like an hour and a half or uh-huh. two hours. And after two hours, I'm like, you know what? Did have I already I say this? that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I already do that? And so I'll have these little pauses or I'll pause to grab a drink real quick. I go, do you guys mind if I grab a soda? And I'll open up an ice chest. And while I'm doing that, I'll start getting people yelling stuff out. But it's it's not to the point where I can't recover for from it or uh, I can't uh, uh, go back and forth. Sometimes I'll have people that are just being loud in the room. You know, they're talking to somebody next to them and they're just like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And then the whole room could hear it. I'm like, hey, you guys, you know, we can all hear you, right? Yeah. So I get disturbances like that or I'll get people that are just walking around, just walking around and they're wearing something bright and they can't find their seat or or something random is happening. How odd. But um, fortunately, uh, it has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with, you know. Yeah, religion get, or yeah, anything none, like none, that. None of that. Yeah, uh, so I don't, I don't have those heated combos and I don't open myself up to problems because there, as soon as you start arguing phones come out and 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 yeah, the argument the argument always starts when when they don't hear what triggered you to begin with they just see you getting mad yeah. and then they're like well here's Gabriel Iglesias getting mad yeah. and they don't see what led to that it just here's where it starts you know, Social it, opened, media. it opens up with, you motherfucker. You know, like, Fluffy hates his fans. <laughs> it's like, wow, what happened? So when you think about the guy who was, uh, you know, couch surfing and uh, losing his job and selling cell phones and uh, Polestar says you're the number two touring comedian in the country, um, you earn that. But 
what do you think about that? This past year, the two big things that really stood out, one of them, of course, was Dodger Stadium, biggest thing I've ever done. And the second one um, actually happened this past month. I, um, I went to go watch Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock. They're doing this tour together. I was going to ask you about that. There's yeah. a picture, and you said you're definitely keeping that one. Yeah. Tell me about that story. So I, I see that they're performing at the Honda Center, which uh, that's the closest show to L.A. Yep. But, but for me, it works out because I live in Long Beach, and it's about 15 minutes away. So I see they're doing the show, and I look online to see about getting tickets for this because there's very few shows I'm willing, very few comedians I'm willing to pay to see, but I'm willing to pay to watch these two legends. Sure. And so once you go online, you know, Ticketmaster is just giving you a big middle finger because yeah. they're like, really, you're going to try to get tickets for this? It's been sold out. Well, you know people, don't you? I so mean- <laughs> then, then, I'm, then I went to plan B. But yeah. I did try to do it the right way well, first. I, have, I admire and, that. Um, uh, so I call my manager, and my manager calls the promoter. Their promoter is the same promoter I used for Dodger Stadium. Oh, nice. A guy named Jeff. And uh, so we reach out, and he calls back, and he's like, look, the show's sold out. But they'll put you in the Live Nation suite at the Honda Center. And I'm like, great. So I was able to bring a few friends with me. We go to the Honda Center. And it was just an epic night. So it had to be. They, I didn't want to worry about parking because I know parking can be a, a drag there. So unless I'm parking underground for a, for a show, I don't want to get in the mix with parking. No. So we got a car service. And uh, sure enough, trying to get off the freeway, it was a mess. It was a mess and a half trying to get off that freeway. And so we're, we're calling security because security wants us to let them know when we get there. Security winds up sending out a police officer to find us in the line. Come on. And then they pulled us out of the line and they did a police escort from basically oh the back my. of the line all the way to the, the back door. Way cool. Which was super cool. I bet. It was like, wow. And then cars are just moving out of the way. We're yelling out the window, that's right. <laughs> We're parting this bitch. <laughs> it was so cool. So then we get out of the car, and then, of course, they escort us to the, the security. Take all your stuff out your pockets. Go to the metal detectors. Chris and Dave had this policy where you got to put your phone in a in a bag to, to protect the thing. Yep. And security was so geeked out that I was standing there. No one asked me for my phone. So I'm like, hey, yeah, it's a good show, huh? And I just walk right past him. And so I, I think I was the only one that made it into that building wow. without having to bag his phone. But it's not like I was there to record. So we wind up going through the concourse. They get us to the suite. And then uh, the promoter walks in and he goes, hey, man, Dave and Chris, they're they're excited you're here. I go, Chris, shut up. And I know this promoter. A lot of times he's full of it. Yeah, they all are. He goes... <laughs> <laughs> he goes, He goes. yeah, man, they're excited you're here. Like, yeah, whatever. So he goes, hey, here's some backstage passes after the show. Come on back. And I'm like, all right, cool. So then uh, they left a security guard in there for me. And when Dave Chappelle had 10 minutes left on his set, the security officer comes over to me and he's like, uh, Mr. Iglesias, we should leave right now before it gets crazy. I'm like, yeah, let's go. So then we go down to the floor. We were in the in the suite. Now we're on the floor level. And the guy tells me, he says, do you want to watch the last few minutes of Mr. Chappelle from the tunnel? And so I'm like, yeah. So I get to go into the tunnel, which is basically the tunnel where hockey players come out or basketball players, you know, whenever the artists or whatever come out of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And so I'm standing there and I'm watching Chappelle. It's, uh, he's performing in the round and he does this thing, finishes, thank you, good night. And then I hear on one of the security officers' radios, I hear, there's, there's someone standing in the tunnel. There's someone standing in the tunnel. I'm like, oh, shit, that's me. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to get out of the way. And oh, my God. They take me backstage and... Uh, I'm just waiting in the hallway, and there's a bunch of heavy hitters there. So I, I see, like, Stan Latham, who's a big name in comedy, directed a bunch of things. And uh, I see Ashton Kutcher, Tony Hawk, Most Deaf, and all these artists are heading back to the, the special room in the back. And I'm just waiting in the hallway. And the promoter, Jeff, comes out, and he goes, hey, man, they're waiting for you. I'm like, really? They're waiting for me? I just saw who walked in there. 
And next thing I know, we walk in and I see a bunch of photographers and they're taking pictures of Chris Rock and uh, Ashton Kutcher. And I'm just watching, and then Chris stops, and he looks at me, and he's like, ah, shit, look who it is. You know, he, he lets go of Ashton, and he comes over to me, and he's hugging me. He's like, what the hell you doing, man? You should have told us you were here. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, you know, Chris, I just wanted to come and support you guys and watch you, you know, come see you. Like, no, nah, man, it's your town. You need to check in. I'm like, I didn't know I needed to check in, but I will check in in the future. <laughs> and so next thing I know, we go to Chappelle's room, and that just looked like a sketch from one of his one of his shows. Really? You know, the room's dark. There's red lights and smoke coming out of the room. No. Yes. And the red lights were because he has red lights in the room to create this vibe, and the smoke is from various... Uh, locations uh, <laughs> yeah and then so Chappelle comes up and he, he he comes up and he's like hey man and gave me a hug and 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 Chris and, and Dave were both talking to each other and they're like we told him they're like you should have been up there they, and they kept telling me I should have been up there oh my and for me that just like it blew my mind and then and then uh Dave goes let's can we take a picture I'm like yeah let's take a picture oh my and then he goes can I put this picture in my special and I said did you just? Yeah. 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 Go, yeah. What, what do I owe you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? And and I'm just like, I can't believe that this conversation is taking place and that I'm getting this much attention That's way cool. from the two of them, being that there's so many people in the room. Yeah. But you and, do what they do. And you know they what? They get it. I, um, I had spoken to both one time prior to that. I was, you know, I just met them. It wasn't even like we hung out. And um, for me, that was massive because I've been telling everybody, I said, I walked into that building a fan. And when I walked out, I walked out a pier. And that for me was bigger than any trophy, bigger than any, you know, Polestar thing. But thank you, Polestar. Uh, yeah, but you meet your, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's not great to meet your heroes. And then when you do and they treat you that, as they did. That was one of the most amazing experiences because I left on such a high. Both of them were beyond nice, gracious, just like the respect and the, like, I had no idea. You know, it's like you do what you do. And when you meet somebody that that that's in the same world. You know, and you you wonder how, you know, because for me, I was willing to come out and pay to see them. My respect is there. I love these guys. They're legends. They're sure. awesome. So the fact that they would give me their time the way that they did, I was just, you know, maybe I didn't think enough of myself, but I was just kind of like, wow, this this is amazing. That's you know? exciting. And then, I, that... and then the next day I got burglarized. So uh, no. that's, that's how life works. Did you really? Yes. Your house? They broke into my house. I was like on such a high that oh I get this phone God. call. Yeah. Hey, man, your shit's missing. I'm like, what? Did they get a lot of stuff? <laughs> No, but the fact that they broke into my house, you know what they took? They took my guns. Unbelievable. Yeah, I had guns. And so uh, I don't really put that out there that, I, that I, I'm a gun carrier or was. Um, <laughs> yeah, they got them all now. They, they, yeah. Wow. They, I, I bought the guns when, I, um, when COVID first hit because mm. uh, you know, I went to the store and uh, the guy sold me on it. He's like, yeah, man, you know, the zombies and everybody's coming and <laughs> the vaccine's going to turn everybody and you got to be ready. And so I had you know, multiple handguns and I bought enough ammo because then he kept saying the ammo's on sale right now. You better get it while it's on sale. Oh my God. Once you start shooting, man, he's just going <laughs> to... So somebody knew you had that stuff there, it sounds like to me. Um, it was a nice house, and I think that they had been casing it, mm. but that's all they took. Wow, that's interesting. Everything in the house, and all they took was the guns. And no security? That's, I mean, I got to think you got security at the house, right? Uh, multiple cameras. We got the whole thing. Like, I got a, you know, wow. uh, it's it was documented very well. The police yeah. were like, thank you for all this footage. <laughs> We'll never find these people. Yeah, but, right. Uh, oh my god. And I even had a fence, and so that I, automatically I knew it was two twenty-year-olds that did it because they scaled the fence. Good God! I told everyone I go if it was two forty-year-olds with a messed up sciatica, they would have seen that <laughs> fence and they would have been like, "Yeah, we ain't doing. Yeah, this. we ain't doing this. <laughs> we ain't doing this. Hit the neighbor." So you, I I have a a Chihuahua, and I know you're a Chihuahua 
a freak, quite honestly. You've got great dogs. Tell me about this quinceanera that you just oh, spent $100,000 on. Is that a true number? Uh, believe it or not, it's actually way more. It's way more. Um, uh, what did you do? Explain to the folks who are listening if they don't know what that first is. First of all, um, uh, I have two chihuahuas. I'm a, you know, a pet lover, dog lover, whatever you want to call it. And uh, my little girl dog, Risa, she's uh, between 16 and 17 years old. She's very old. And I had seen on TikTok there was a guy that threw a quinceañera for his chihuahua in Mexico. <laughs> now, quinceañera is basically a Mexican sweet 16, but yeah. it's 15. It's like a bar you know, com- coming of age. It's yeah. It's it's the it's the celebration. It's the next chapter, and you know. And so I saw this guy throw a party for his dog, and you know he's bringing the dog out in a pillow. Everyone's dressed up really nice. It was a legit. It almost looked like a wedding. Yeah. And I remember seeing that video, and I was like, ooh. I go, there's no way that guy loves his dog as much as I love mine. And I says, you know what? I was gonna throw myself a party to celebrate the Dodger Stadium thing. And I says, well, I didn't because I just went back to work. So I says, you know what? Let me, that party I was going to throw for me, I'm going to make it about my dog. And so I did. And I mean, I went all out. Where was that? I went all out. It was at my building in Long Beach. And so. Uh, you wear long pants. I'd never seen you in long pants. I know. <laughs> right. That's how legit I took it. That's how serious I took it. It was, it was, it was serious. Um, we had some like Cirque du Soleil performers. We had DJs, a band. There was a, a, a dog show. No. Like, this guy, uh, Christian and Scooby from Vegas, they, the guy comes out with his chihuahuas and he does like, he balances them on his feet. He makes the ball, the dogs ride basketballs. And I mean, it's a whole That's show. Hysterical. It's a dance floor. We had uh, robots, dancing robots. We had so much food. I mean, it was insane. The amount of food and drinks and Everybody had such a good time. You got great publicity on that thing. Here's the thing is that I wasn't trying to do that. Uh, the plan was, and then I, I told everybody who attended the party, I said, hey, look, this isn't about me. This is about my dog. Please do not record me. Okay? Mm-hmm. Do not record me. You could take all the pictures, all the video you want. Do not record me or, or tag me. And uh, one person did it. They mm-hmm. recorded me when I was pushing the dog yeah. stroller, which is the video everybody saw. And uh, they wanted up posting it on TikTok. And then I get a phone call that, hey, Gabe, have you seen that video? It's got like a million views. And I'm like, what? A million views. So I'm like, at that point, the cat's out of the bag. So I says, you know what? I'm not going to let somebody else capitalize on this. Let me do it. So then I posted it Uh, all over my social media, and it wound up getting like 5 million views. Oh, yeah. It was was everywhere. And next thing I know, freaking uh, People Magazine's talking about it. Today's show's talking about it. It made its rounds. It was fantastic. And I loved um, it. For me, like I got a lot of positive feedback, but then I also got people that were like, really? You know, you're going to do that for a dog? And I'm like, you can't win. You can't win them all. No. And of course, there were some people that were just beating me up, and they're like, you know, there's starving children in this world, right? And I'm like, oh god. And I'm like, you know, they should have been at my party. Everyone yeah. ate. <laughs> everyone, right. everyone left with Tupperware. It was really, <laughs> it was cool. We had Tupperware. Tell me about your car collection. How that happened? Car collection. I have a, a basically a Volkswagen museum. I have a a, a bunch of pre 1967 Volkswagen buses and a couple of bugs, but my passion is uh, the buses. Uh, that got started through Jay Leno. Really? Yeah, that's why I tell everybody I have a Jay Leno starter kit at home because uh, I was hanging out with Jay and Jay started asking me questions about what I was doing with, with money because he knew that uh, things were going well and he's like, you know, how you investing your money? You're doing good with the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How you doing that's funny. He, I love it. Your, your impression is a little bit worse than mine. So. <laughs> well, we all, we all we do all, Jay we and all, we all do Mitzi Shore. Bru- yeah, uh, there's a guy right there. <laughs> Mitzi, Mark, there's nothing Mitzi. else I can do for you. 
He's so funny. <laughs> Call Polly. Yeah, we all we all. Luckiest man in show it. business. <laughs> um, so yeah, Jay Jay told told me that uh, he says, "Hey man, uh, you know I have all these cars," and he goes, "This this is also my investment." He goes, "It's like I enjoy my investment." You know, when you when you buy in a classic cars, uh, you know, when you you get to enjoy it, and if you decide to sell it, you could actually make money on it. And I don't think Jay's ever sold one of his cars, but ever. that's just what he said. Yeah. And so uh, I had gotten my ex girlfriend back her car. She she used to drive a Trans Am, and I got her her car back. And Jay's guys were like, "Hey, if you ever want another car, let me know." And I said, "Well, you know, I, I'd like to see about getting a Volkswagen bus." And I told him the year, and less than a day later they they had a car lined up for me really and so they delivered it and they said if you want anything else let us know and i said well if you come across another one of these let me know and we played that game for about a year and i built a collection of about 20 cars in a year good guy and then i met somebody that does restorations i met someone that does all the engine work and so then i got everybody on the same team and now it's like you make a phone call and i want to order a bus a certain way and it gets all done do you drive them yes and it, I heard there's going to be a museum at some point. Is that true? Uh, the idea is once I'm long gone, uh, I'm working on Mexican Graceland right now. <laughs> so I can just leave all the cars behind. And, you know, so there's there's a bunch Mexican of cars. Graceland. There's a there's a gym that hardly gets used there. There's my, um, I have a, a studio, like for recordings and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I have a conference room with a bunch of pictures. There's a ton of photos all over the walls. And so it looks really cool. It already, it already looks like a museum. That's but, cool. But the city, you know, getting the city on board for one thing and, you know. I think it's one of those like like I said once I'm once I, I check out so people can come and visit I'll leave the ashes there. <laughs> wow, think about that for a second. Um, let's talk about that. You open up a door here, um, and tell me I I've, I always like to do research. Um, at one point you were dealing with depression and alcoholism. True story. Uh, well, you know I come to find out it wasn't alcoholism because I guess you got to be drinking every day to be considered an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was just excess because. Uh, Based on ounces, mm -hmm. I guess I could be classified as an alcoholic, but the fact that it was all taking place on one day uh, means I'm not. It was just, you know, I would just get a little carried away from time to time. Hey, we've all done that. Uh, as far as the depression goes, I think it had a lot to do with balancing my life because, uh, you know, I had this road life as a comic mm -hmm. and then the home life and then mm -hmm. trying to make the two work. And well, one makes you really, really happy and the other one, uh, yeah, yeah, has a lot of questions. So <laughs> so trying to... The word sacrifice comes into mind. Yes. Uh, you know, there, there is a lot of sacrifice and... Uh, I can't say that it was 100% work that I was, you know, doing while I was gone. But at the same time, when I first got into the relationship, uh, she knew what I did for a living. Yeah. She and, and it was understood that, hey, this is only going up right now. It's not going down. And so if you're willing to, you know, go on this ride, just know that it's going to get crazier every year. And it was every single year. Just more, there were more dates, more opportunities, more money, and with all of that comes more problems. Yeah. And so eventually, it wound up taking its toll. I found my own ways of dealing with things, and unfortunately, it wasn't the best way of dealing with things. And then, of course, then you're like reflecting on it, and that's when there's uh, issues with drinking or whatever else you get into. And you know, fortunately, a uh, couple years of of not doing anything uh, got me into a better place. And I started seeing a therapist, and I'm like, that's another uh, um, uh, milestone for me was once I got a therapist uh, and I was able to afford it, I told people, that's when you know you're successful, when you, <laughs> when you can afford a therapist and, and, and not flinch when they give you that you know, invoice. Because before, I would deal with my issues with a bottle of tequila and tears, yeah. put on some mariachi music, and all right, <laughs> you know, whatever you say is whatever you say. And then, and then when they judge you, you go, you know, it's the bottle talking. That was always your scapegoat. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, I haven't seen you in about four years. Last time we ran into each other. Yeah, um, you pie to the face. Uh, exactly. <laughs> you look uh, in pretty good shape overall. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's jeans. They help. It, well, I'm, yeah. I'm standing up straight. Um, let's, I'm going to mention some names here and just give me your... At your highest point, you were what, 445 pounds is what I read? I was rough. Yeah. Uh, 437 was my max. At 437. Okay. So uh, type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. and they gave you a couple of years to live. You know, but I think that's, in hindsight, I think that's a lot of doctors are just going to, you know, tell you that. Yeah. Out the gate. Yeah. That's been about 10 years now. Okay. So the couple's been a decade now, so <laughs> he was off. But then again, I did make some adjustments. When you think of Chris Farley, what comes to mind? Wow. Very funny. Very talented. He was very... Um, very animated. The guy was very physical. He was like, a, he reminds me of John Ritter back in the day. Mm. You know, John Ritter was very a very physical performer. Yep. And the fact that he carried the weight that he did and he was able to do what he did was incredible. And unfortunately, he got caught up. Yep. You know. That, that was drugs. Yeah. Chris and, Farley. And it was uh, a lot was... of uh, a lot of expectation, too. You know, you become the guy at the party where, you know. Everybody has every, expectations. Yes. And you get caught up into that. Uh, John Candy. John Candy. Uh, super funny. You know, I, I, honestly, a great actor. He yeah. Was a great actor. There was no part that I felt like it was like, uh, like it didn't fit him. Uh, he could play serious. He could be funny. He could just, you know, do a combination of the two. I felt like Uncle Buck was one of those films that like it was a a, a nice, you could see into his soul. And it, it was awesome to see like, wow, this is, this is beautiful. Uh, they asked me to see if I was interested in doing a, uh, a reboot of it. Really? And I said, there's no way I could do that part justice and I'm not about to have people um, try to compare us yeah and no, I don't I, nor do I want to be part of that conversation you got to learn when to say no yeah and I that was a wise choice I think yeah no, I don't I'm, know anybody not, who could mm, I ain't trying uh, John Panette John Panette I actually got to meet John Panette a couple of times uh, super f- very funny. nice oh, he's yeah. very nice yeah. he was very very nice very funny um, he got really really heavy and then he lost a ton of weight and unfortunately, I think it was just too late yeah. at that point. The yeah. damage was done. Uh, everybody you mentioned, definitely uh, over 400 pounds. Ralphie May? Ra- yeah, another one. I knew Ralphie very well. Very, very well. He was super funny. Um, unfortunately, in the last couple of years, between the divorce and all that, that really took a lot of, you know, big toll. Yeah. It took a big toll on him. Um, I also knew, you know, he liked to smoke weed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're that heavy, I mean, don't get me wrong. It, you know, I, I had my my little run with it, and from time to time, I, I want to go to sleep, you know, hungry. So <laughs> I'll, I'll do it, but it's not it's not a regular thing. Plus, I rely on my voice a lot. So you smoke, or you get any smoke in there, you're gonna you know <clears throat> you can be raspy, and and it's not gonna work for me. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't know this that Ralphie was vegan. I never knew that. Or not not vegan. He was vegetarian. Vegetarian. Okay, vegetarian. But still vegetarian. It was so funny because uh, I picked him up when he flew from Houston to L.A. to move here. And I picked him up at the airport and I was telling everybody, I go, Ralphie Mays coming to town. I'm going to pick him up. I'm going to take him to this badass steakhouse. It's going to be incredible. And so I pick him up at the airport and he gets in the car. And this is when I was driving the Oldsmobile. And so it was a perfect car, big old front seat. So he gets in the car and, what's up, big daddy? How you doing, man? I go, Ralphie, I go, ah, I'm going to take you to this badass steakhouse. You're going to love it. And he goes, daddy, I didn't mention it, but uh, I'm vegetarian. I go, shut up. I'm vegetarian. I go, dude, what do you eat, crops? And he fell out. He goes, ah! so, Oh, my God. And what's funny is that Ralphie used to love to do barbecues. He'd have people come over his house, and he would he knew how to barbecue really well. But he, he just, didn't eat it. He didn't eat it. I had no idea. Yeah, and so I was just like, okay. 
But P- super, routine, super nice guy. Panette's routine about uh, going to a Chinese restaurant was just one of my favorite. You go now. <laughs> you go You're now. You're here for an hour. <laughs> yeah, for an hour. You're here for an hour. <laughs> It was the you best. eat the vegetable. <laughs> it was hysterical. I don't know if you can do that bit now. <laughs> you don't think so? I'm, yeah, you know what you say. You can't do anything anymore, yeah, man. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So a lot of people love you, okay? And the guy sitting across from you loves you. And and I guess the question I have to ask you, and it's it's, it's a tough one, is is you know how often do you think about your weight? How often do you? I mean, it's got to be in every your head. day. Every day. Every day. Uh, in my room. Um, I have a, uh, in my bathroom, I have a scale. It's right next to my urinal. Uh, <laughs> I actually had a urinal installed. <laughs> By Did the way, you that, really? Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> I, I had wanted a urinal for forever. Oh, why? Just because, dude, you're, you're a guy. Come on. <laughs> I'm a guy, yeah. Yeah, because it's convenient. You're standing there. You know, I'm a leaner. So when I'm, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm you know, <laughs> hey man, you, you asked. So, uh, I had always wanted a urinal in the bathroom, and my ex was like, this is not a truck stop. You're not putting no urinal in here. I'm like, fine. And, you know, there's the mop, you know, because <laughs> I'm a big dude. So anyway, once I finally got into a place where I could do it, I, I had a urinal That's installed. Hysterical. And next to the urinal, I have a scale. And so every morning, I, every morning I do weigh myself. Really? Every morning I weigh myself. And so I'm, it's always a, a thought in the back of my mind. Yeah. Because you know, when I go to sleep or when I'm sitting in the car, uh, when I'm over 400, I have a really bad issue with anxiety. Mm. And so the anxiety will kick in and there comes a point where I can't even put on certain articles of clothing because I feel like I'm being constricted and I can't mm. breathe right. Mm. Um, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable, but I know I could be better. You know, and uh, uh, my weight has been lower in the last 10 years than it was, than it is now. What's the lowest it's been? Um, let me see. I got down to 317. And so what are you at now? Right now, 351. What's your favorite food? Ooh. Man, a lot of things come to mind right now. <laughs> See, pizza instantaneously. Well, I'm a big, favorite. I love cheese. I'm, I'm big on cheese, and so I'm, my favorite thing is just a plain cheese quesadilla. Just very basic. Wrong. You know, I grew up on those. So my mom would yeah. make just three pieces of cheese, tortilla, fold it, microwave, one minute, I'm eating. And so I'm, I'm very simple that way. Best burrito in town is... I don't. I couldn't even tell you. Really, I couldn't even tell you. You know, last week I, uh, I'll name drop here somewhere. I went to Santa Anita with uh, with Bobby Flay and Jet Tila, and Jet Tila took me to a restaurant in Highland Park, where uh, unless you knew what to order, you wouldn't know. And these people have had this restaurant for twenty five years, and they put us in a private room, and it was lobster and and rice and fish like I've never had in my entire life. And I said, Jet, if I would come to your house, is this what I'd be having? He goes, Absolutely. And and so to. Be in the presence of chefs like that who serve food that is so good and so different and so unique. And you go, boy, I, you know, that's like it's one of the joys we get because we are who we are. We get to know who these people are and share in that. Uh, and, and eat at restaurants that are like that because like now my, my mental bar, I used to be able to just go to Sizzler. And be like, this is the greatest ever. Like, like <laughs> thank like, God you've moved. You on. know what? I can go to that salad bar all I want. You know, I could get salad or not. Or not. You know, they got the wings, they got uh, meatballs and other things there. And then you know, I'd order a little uh, Malibu chicken, and that for me was the best. I go, it doesn't get better than Sizzler. <laughs> and then you get introduced to places like a, a Mastros or a, oh, yeah. you know, or Capital Grill or. You know some of these places, and you're like, wow. It's even even a Ruth Chris, yeah. Ruth Chris is is pretty awesome. It's not bad. Are you a sushi guy? Uh, not so much. Not so much. Okay. I mean, I'll do anything tempura. So you tempura it. Uh, you know the the crunchy rolls, uh, the dynamite shrimp. Uh, I got to take you to Nobu then. Have you been to Nobu? I've heard of Nobu. Oh, I, okay. I'm taking. Yeah. You. No, actually, I did. I did eat at Nobu uh, in Spain. 
In Spain? Yeah, I was in Spain, and uh, Nobu, I want to say, is also the name of the hotel. Yes, absolutely. There's a Nobu hotel there. Yeah, I, where were you? So Barcelona? A, or where yes. were you? Yeah, okay. And so, I know, right? Sounds yeah. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> he, it's like, he was at Sizzler a minute ago. <laughs> oh, this guy travels fast. <laughs> I get around. <laughs> so, yeah, I got to eat at the mm-hmm. Nobu there. Uh, this has been more enjoyable than you'll ever know for me because um, I've, I've never really had a chance to sit down and talk with you. And you're so interesting. And this has been such an easy conversation. And you're so giving. And you're so talented. And I just wish you all Thank the you, success Mark. in the world. Keep it going, my friend. Uh, don't talk about checking out and doing museums afterwards. Uh, enjoy your life now. Uh, do the museum when you can watch other people enjoy it. And uh, continued success. Thank you very much. Talking to Fluffy, Gabriel Iglesias, Mark Summers, Unwrapped. See you next week. Mark Summers Unwraps is a production of Believe Limited, created by me, Mark Summers, and Jessica Richmond. Produced by Keith Corneluk and Jessica Richmond. Executive produced by Patrick James Lynch and Ryan Geelan. Post-production support from Joshua Sterling Bragg and Believe Limited. Don't forget to subscribe or follow the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you really love it, why don't you leave us a rating and a review? Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Mark Summers Unwraps.